At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 405th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Growing plants that thrive in our yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today on our podcast, we have someone who helps others understand organic recycling through vermicomposting. We're talking with Rhonda Sherman about worm farming large and small. Rhonda is an extension specialist in the Department of Horticulture Science at North Carolina State University, providing leadership for university outreach programs on solid waste management issues through the Cooperative Extension Service. She holds degrees in environmental studies and urban regional planning and environmental resources analysis with an emphasis in solid waste management. Rhonda's areas of expertise are vermicomposting, composting, recycling, and waste reduction. She gives about 40 presentations annually and has authored over 65 publications on these topics. Her new book, The Worm Farmer's Handbook, Mid to Large Scale Vermicomposting for Farms, Businesses, Municipalities, Schools, and Institutions, is published by our friends at Chelsea Green. Welcome to the show today, Rhonda. Are you ready to rock worm composting? I'm ready to rock. Excellent. <laughs> so I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. I got started back in the 70s, studied environmental studies, and became very passionate about waste reduction. My first professional job was in 1980 in correlating how landfills were leaking and contaminating area household wells. Wow. Not cool. So, and that was just the beginning. I mean, they were just discovering that landfills could leak. This is back when they had dumps before they had sanitary landfills. Right. And they were realizing that it was contaminating people's wells. And so I just realized the importance of that, and I just stuck with it. So my career has been in waste reduction ever since 1980. Wow. So there's there's a big jump from waste reduction to worm composting. Talk to me about how that happened. <laughs> okay. So in 1993, North Carolina State University hired me because the state of North Carolina had just mandated recycling. And people were calling this land-grant university saying, how do I recycle? And so I was hired to, <laughs> to help citizens and help local governments understand 
how to keep recyclables out of the landfill. Uh-huh. But I realized that everyone was talking about cans, paper, and bottles, and no one was talking about food waste. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a big problem. And so I started publishing fact sheets and educating people to keep food waste out of landfills and out of sink drains. And so one of the publications I published back in 1994, I called it Worms Can Recycle Your Garbage. And I was in an engineering department at the time, Uh and my fellow engineers tried to laugh me out of the room. They were like, you wrote about worms? (laughs) And I had the last laugh because... My fact sheet just was flying off the shelves uh-huh. the shelves, and having to be reprinted. And then people started contacting me from all over the world saying, I want to learn more about vermicomposting. Wow. And so people were just constantly contacting me about it. And so it changed the course of my career due to popular demand. That's what I ended up doing. You know, I had to shift my focus to vermicomposting because they were just so into it. So people in 110 countries have contacted me about vermicomposting. And now it's about 90% of what I do because most people don't need to contact me about recycling anymore. People have kind of gotten the hang of that. But vermicomposting is a growing field. (laughs) Yeah. Vermicomposting is growing in interest throughout the world on a small, medium, or large scale because people are realizing the importance of recycling their organic materials Mm -hmm. and turning them into something useful and beneficial for soils. As you know, soils have been depleted worldwide for a variety of reasons, and vermicompost does so much to help soils that It's just, you know, people are realizing that and using it more and more. Yeah. Well, and the biggest part of the problem, and a lot of people probably don't realize this, and this is 2008 numbers. In Phoenix, we have 4.4 million people. And according to the EPA, we have 1,100 tons of food waste per day in Phoenix. And that, again, is 2008 numbers. That's pretty significant, is it not? Oh, definitely. That's why I focus so much of my work and try to shine a light on it because people don't realize how dangerous it is to be putting food waste in landfills or down the drain. First of all, food waste, it is not the largest category of waste that's generated. Mm -hmm. So out of all the waste that we generate, paper is by far the largest category of waste. But it's not the largest category of waste going into landfills, and that's because of recycling. Mm. But food waste has been ignored all these decades. And thank goodness, now I'd say within the past seven years, there's been a lot of focus on food waste. You you know, more books are coming out. You hear about it more in the media. But municipalities have been slow to implement food waste recovery options. And so, you know, there are over 120 cities throughout the United States that offer some type of food waste recovery. But that's small, you know, compared to you know, how many cities we have. 
So the number one category of waste going to landfills is food. And people think, oh yeah, food waste, big deal. Well, food waste causes two major problems in landfills because landfills, they generate methane. Okay, and Mm -hmm. there are mechanisms in place to capture the methane, but landfill operators are not required to do anything with the methane, so they can just flare it off. And even those few landfills that are capturing the methane and using it to turn turbines to generate electricity, Uh still much of the methane escapes into the atmosphere. And so, as we know, climate change is a huge issue. And methane is one of the biggest drivers of climate change. Landfills are the number three source of human-generated methane emissions. And unfortunately, people don't realize that. And the methane is not coming from plastic bags that go into the landfill. It's coming from organic material. And about half of the states in the United States have banned yard waste from landfills. And staff generating methane is not as big of a problem as it is food waste. And that's because we're only keeping about 3 or 4% of food waste that's generated out of the landfill. So it's a really huge problem. So I talked about methane uh-huh. and how it affects our climate, but also food waste is very acidic. And we have lots of things that go into the landfill that are toxic or they have heavy metals. And so one example I give, if you just have a tin can, it's just going to sit there. But when food waste rubs up against that tin can mm-hmm. in the landfill, the acidity in it releases heavy metals. And then eventually when a landfill leaks, Then you have toxic compounds and heavy metals and so forth coming out of the landfill and going into water. So food waste is just an enormous problem for landfill. Exactly. And then also a lot of people put food waste down the drain. You know, it seems so easy. Oh, I'll use that in sinkerate or whatever. And I don't think people think about where it goes. It just goes away, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's what they think. But food waste is going into your septic tank and you're going to have to pump out your septic tank much more often, which costs you money. Mm -hmm. And food waste just caused problems because your septic tank was not designed for that. Now, in some communities, what goes down your sink goes into local waterways. And so all that food waste will cause aquatic life to die. And then if you're living in a big city like Phoenix or Raleigh, where I am. We have state-of-the-art wastewater treatment plants, but they were designed to handle wastewater. Oh, right. From washing dishes and flushing the toilet, they they weren't designed to handle all of the just tons of food waste that goes down the drain. So food waste is just a really big problem. Huge, yeah. And I've, I've actually known that for a while, and you've given me a new perspective on it. So thank you for that. Sure, you're welcome. So I have in my hand here a book, a new book by you called The Worm Farmer's Handbook, Mid to Large Scale Vermicomposting for Farms, Business, Municipalities, Schools, and Institutions. So this is for entrepreneurs and institutions. How did this come to be and what is it? 
Chelsea Green called me about a year ago and said, we noticed that there are books on small-scale vermicomposting, but we're not seeing anything on mid-to-large-scale worm farming. They said, would you be interested in writing this? And I said, yes. Coincidentally, I was planning to start writing a book. And it was wonderful how the stars aligned. And Chelsea Green has just been fantastic to work with. Oh, yeah, they're that way for sure. Yeah. And and they were just so supportive that they fast-tracked the book. I wrote the book pretty darn quickly, nine months instead of a year, and they're fast-tracking the printing. It actually leaves the printer this Tuesday, and it will start being distributed to Amazon and all the places people have pre-ordered the book. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So it says mid to large scale vermicomposting. I have in my backyard a vermicomposting bin that is three by three by four. Is that mid scale or is that still home scale? So it's a worm bin? Yes. Three foot by three foot by four feet. Four feet deep? Ish. It's a flow through worm bin. So the, you know, I put the stuff in on top and it flows through and it comes out the bottom and I get about five, five gallon buckets a season, a year out of it. I suspect that's still small scale though, is it not? Yeah, it's on the cusp of (laughs) small and medium scale. Mm -hmm. And by the way, there is no industry, there's no trade organization for vermicomposting. Uh And so there is no formal definition. I provided my definition in the book. Small scale is what people are dealing with their kitchen scrap primarily. Got it. So it could be any size. I mean, I had a four foot by four foot bin behind my house where I put only kitchen scraps. Mm -hmm. And so I considered that small scale, you know, but when you get into medium scale, that's where people have livestock, some type of livestock Mm -hmm. and not chickens, but because chicken manure is too high in ammonia for worms. Right. That's the one type of manure you don't want to vermicompost. But if you have goats or sheep or cows. Rabbits. Rabbits. Rabbit trees will actually put worm bins right underneath their rabbit hutches. Mm -hmm. And it's a very efficient way of converting what you would think of as waste into something very beneficial. So what is your definition of mid to large scale vermicomposting? Mid would be schools collecting their cafeteria waste. That might be Mm mid-scale. Community gardens, somebody with a small farm, those sorts of situations. And then large-scale would be more for businesses, somebody who's gone into the business of making money to generate either to sell worms or vermicompost. Got it. And the large scale can be where you have miles of windrows, outdoor windrows, or a big building with flow-through reactors that are 200 feet long. When our friend Zach Brooks at Arizona Worm Farms, he's the mid to large scale. He's got indoor windrows or in greenhouses that he's doing it. And I know you know him and we've, we've chatted about him earlier. What's he up to? So Zach is converting his windrows to the wedge system, which Uh is a 
a more efficient way of it kind of maximizes space more. Uh-huh. And he told me that he's having a lot of success with that. Zach will be here next month here in Raleigh, North Carolina, because my 19th annual vermiculture conference will be held on November 10 and 11 in Raleigh, North Carolina. And wow. so Zach will be attending and speaking for the first time. I'm really looking forward to that. Cool. And then January, I'll be in Phoenix for U.S. Composting Council. We'll be having their annual conference. Zach Brooks and I are putting on a half-day workshop on January 28th where we'll talk about mid- to large-scale vermicomposting. And then in the afternoon, we're going to Zach's farm for a tour. Nice. And people will get to see that Zach is living off the grid. I mean, it's so oh, cool. Yeah. I'm very excited about seeing his solar panels and mm-hmm. the composting and vermicomposting that he's doing. And, of course, he has the challenge of super high temperatures during the <laughs> summertime. Yeah. He's worked it out so that he can keep his worms alive and thriving during that hot weather. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Nice. I was really excited a couple of years ago when I stumbled across what he was doing because I was shipping in worm castings from the Pacific Northwest. And when I found him here, because we run a fruit tree program here in the valley, and we sell actually a couple of tons of worm castings every year. So having him in our backyard was like, yay! <laughs> it was a definitely awesome. a bonus, definitely a bonus. So if I was going to get into mid to large scale and really mid to large business level, whether you're an institution or whether you want to start this business for yourself to, you know, making worm castings and selling worms, what are the top three things somebody has to know before they get going? They have to master earthworm husbandry. Mm -hmm. The very first thing you should do is to start a small-scale worm bin. So I give lectures on household vermicomposting all the time, and I have publications on my website. I've got that game changer for me. Worms can recycle your garbage. And so it tells how to set up a small-scale bin. And so you invest money to buy one pound of worms, which is about a thousand. Right. Uh-huh. And you want to buy them from a worm grower, and you can get them for around twenty-five to thirty, thirty-five dollars. There are people on the internet who would love to take forty-nine ninety-nine out of your pocket, but yep. I'm telling you, you can get them cheaper. But still, even if it's thirty dollars, you don't want to just throw away thirty dollars. So mm-hmm. you buy these worms from a worm grower, and You set up the type of bin you want. You can buy commercial bins or you can make your own, and my publication tells you how to do that. And start mastering earthworm husbandry, okay? I tell my audience, you're not going to just pick up a cow on your way home. (laughs) You've never had a cow. Right. That's crazy. Immediately, their minds start churning like, oh, my gosh, if I picked up a cow, Where would I shelter it? What would I feed Mm -hmm. it? How would I handle it? All of these husbandry questions start running through their minds. And I've just been amazed that a lot of people don't even think about husbandry for worms. They're living beings. They have the same, they have similar needs that cows have. (laughs) And yet people are like, oh yeah, whatever, I'll buy worms. And So I really want to caution people because I've seen people decide that 
I want to go into worm farming, and they'll order 100 pounds of worms. Oh, my gosh. That's 100,000 worms. Now, why would you do that if you had no experience? A lot of people think it's all about the machine. So, you know, they're like, oh, I'll buy one of these continuous flow-through reactors and just plug it in and, and see the money just start rolling in. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's not about the equipment. It's about keeping the worms alive and thriving. Mm -hmm. Super important. Start with a small home bin. Yes. It's so easy to kill worms. People, unfortunately, they do. So I have a troubleshooting guide in my fact sheet, Worms Can Recycle Your Garbage. So if there are problems going on, you can look at the troubleshooting guide and try to figure out what's happening. I tell people, read this guide like three times. It's only five pages, you know, but just read it and reread it because it's not rocket science. It's not that hard, but I think too many people just kind of rush into it and they don't pay attention to the basics. Right. I was talking with someone yesterday who he's writing a business plan for starting a worm farming business. And mm -hmm. I was alarmed that he didn't know something very basic that, that you should know. And, right. and that's happened to me time and time again. Like I said, people are contacting me from around the world and they're like, hey, I'm ready to jump into this. And they don't know the first thing about raising worms. So where do we find this guide at that you've mentioned several times? If you go to my website, composting.ces for Cooperative Extension Service, dot NCSU for North Carolina State University .edu. And you go to that website and there is so much information that I recently made a video that actually shows you how to move through the website because I just have so much information there. So you just pay attention to the red rectangles on, on the, the left, left side of the page, yeah. and you can move through them. And a lot of people don't – well, now you can see I've got a video there, and mm -hmm. it shows my compost learning lab. It's over an acre of land, and I have oh, nice. 14 types of compost bins uh -huh. and 12 types of worm bins. And so I have people come out there. I lead tours and classes where – People can see actual compost, like backyard compost bins, for example, because if you wanted to get into composting at your home, you would probably Google compost bins. And you go online and you'd see this nice, shiny, beautiful compost bin and read about it and go, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Then you come out to my site and you see it in person and it's being held together by bungee cords. Uh -huh. so, so you get the real experience at my site. I don't know of any other uh, demonstration sites that have as many compost bins. Usually you'll, you might have two, but I've got 14. And then I've got a worm barn and inside the worm barn, I have 12 types of vermicomposting bins, mm -hmm. and they range in size from the household. I have several types of household bins, and then I have a continuous flow through reactor that's 40 square feet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so people get to see from small to medium scale, and mm -hmm. then this 40-square-foot reactor can be changed into, you can make it, it's modular, so it's 8 foot by 5 foot, and you can just 
order as many modules mm. as you want, and they can be 40 feet long. Do you have descriptions of these on uh, composting.ces.ncsu.edu? I don't have descriptions of the bins because, again, I try to show the, the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> I work for the state, and so I offer unbiased information, and so I wouldn't want to talk bad about a mm-hmm. compost bin. If you come to my site, your eyes will do the talking there for you. you the, yeah, you'll see it. I don't need to say anything. You just see it and go, oh, my. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can make your own decision based yeah. on looking things, at things. So if you click on composting, you'll see it's divided into home and backyard composting and then large-scale composting. Mm-hmm. And then if you click on vermicomposting, then you've got a whole separate website about my vermiculture conference and then vermicomposting for households. And that's where you'll find, to answer your question, that's where you'll find worms can recycle your garbage. Got it. So I always have several introductory paragraphs that describe the topic and then towards the bottom I have publications that you can click on and Mm -hmm. they're all free so you just click on them and you can read them and then I have vermicomposting for schools and I have a curriculum so any of your listeners who work with children in some capacity either as teachers or scout leaders or church Sunday school leaders you can click on this free curriculum, and it says that it's for fifth graders, but it's only because we aligned it with the fifth grade standards, school mm-hmm. standards. But you can adapt this curriculum for any age level, so from preschool to 12th grade. And so it has six chapters and two activities in, in each lesson. And so... That's a really useful thing. And then you'll also see that you can click on vermicomposting for business, farms, institutions, and municipalities. And that's where I have the most information. And again, that's because people in 110 countries (laughs) contact me, and they're contacting me about larger-scale vermicomposting. Excellent. Oh, my gosh. Such a plethora of great information. So check out her website and we'll have that link on the show notes page. So I'm going to go ahead and shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Well, I would say that like everyone, I failed many times at many things. So, you know, I I could talk for days about that. But I thought I would just mention that I had a couple of warm bins that I had outdoors in my carport and winter came along even though i'm in north carolina it does get pretty cold here Mm -hmm. during the winter time and one of the bins i just didn't insulate as well as i should have i should have taken more time to put better insulation around it and so the worms died in that bin the other bin was fine the worms were fine so lesson learned that just have to take the time to do a better job of insulating yeah. the bin. Our, our problem is opposite here in Phoenix, and that's that they cook in the summertime. So I have to end up yeah. icing the worms. Right. Yes. You have the opposite problem. And it's actually easier to insulate a worm bin from the cold yep. than it is to cool it down from the heat. Mm-hmm. So what do you consider your biggest success 
the fact that people in 110 countries have contacted me personally to learn about vermicomposting, I'm very pleased that so many people worldwide are taking an interest in vermicompost and they're contacting me to get this unbiased information. I'm very pleased that I can offer unbiased information. And what I mean by unbiased is that I'm not trying to sell anything. Right. And I'm offering information that I've researched thoroughly. And so you can trust what I'm saying. And again, there's nothing for me to get out of it. I just share it freely. And Mm -hmm. I enjoy that through my job. And it sounds like you have a, a big experimental showcase place that you get to play with all these things, which seems like an amazing success to me. When you were talking about that, it was like, oh, I wish. <laughs> yes, it, it's been fantastic working at the university for the past 26 years. Mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed it. I love that it is a land-grant university, and so that means that you have people who teach, people who do research, and people who do extension. And that means taking researched, unbiased, free information out to the public. And I think that's just a terrific service, that you don't have to pay the university to get Mm -hmm. this information. Right. Excellent. So what drives you? My desire to help people and also to help the planet, because... In our education, we learn about reading, writing, and arithmetic, and the environment is not part of our (laughs) education. And so, you know, there's just a lot of people, just like when I was talking about food waste, so many people just, they don't understand landfills and the dangerous effects that landfills can have and the importance of recycling materials instead of wasting them. Because we don't have endless natural resources. And so I just feel like a lot of people don't understand that. Mm -hmm. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I recommend The Warm Farmer's Handbook by (laughs) Rhonda Sherman. (laughs) Uh, But we've already talked about that one. That's going to be on our show notes page. Give me another one. Oh, another one? I tell you, back in the 70s when I was studying about the environment, the population bomb had by Mm. um, Paul and Ann Ehrlich had a really huge impact on me. Mm -hmm. Um, It was like, wow, yeah, kind of makes sense. We've got more people using more resources and things are just not balancing out. So anyway, I've just kind of lived my life like that. When I got married, we had a baby and then we adopted our next baby because Mm -hmm. we wanted to provide a family for a baby who was already here and needed parents. Yeah, that's a powerful book. I read it many years ago. Go check that book out. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Thoroughly research about vermicomposting without just jumping into it. Mm -hmm. The internet is wonderful, and it's great that there are so many resources there, but there are a lot of people who are just trying to sell things to you Mm -hmm. or people who are 
recycling information. They're kind of just grabbing information and putting it on their website, and they don't really understand the science of vermicomposting. And so often inaccurate information is posted. And so I just really want to encourage people to check out websites that end in .edu or .gov, you know, to try to get unbiased information. And my big takeaway is that food waste is a huge problem, which I kind of already knew that. And don't put it in the trash can and don't put it down the drain. You need to figure out some way to compost it. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Rhonda. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. Lots of great information. I learned some things. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Go to the website. Go to composting.ces.ncsu.edu. You'll see my email on there. I also just added a Google form. So you can fill out the form with your you know, with your contact information and indicate what your interest is. And mm-hmm. and then I will provide that information to you. Perfect. Take some time to go through the website. It's amazing the number of people I'll say, have you read my information on the website? And they'll say, well, not yet. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's so much there. It will keep you yeah. busy reading for days and just oh, provide a lot of information that will help you and demystify what vermicomposting is. Right. I'd give that advice to people about my fruit tree program as well. It's all on the website. Just jump in and learn there and then shoot me your questions. Yes. Cool. So you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash worm farmers handbook. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles podcast webinars courses and more well that's it for today thanks for joining us on the urban farm podcast growing plants that thrive in our yard is a lot easier than you think it starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned just text seeds to 33444 or visit iwanttosaveseeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter why saving them is easy and how you can save your own We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org 
forward slash feed the leaves.